Hey, everybody, I'm Heather Dubrow. And I'm Dr. Terry Dubrow. Every Friday, check out my podcast, Heather Dubrow's World. We also have a brand new show, The Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig Show, every Tuesday. So don't forget iTunes and Podcast One. Tune in to Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig on Tuesdays and Heather Dubrow's World every Friday. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every week in my New York City apartment. And sitting across the table in my apartment where everything happens is Michelle Mitchell. So some people get started on a project after they're hit with inspiration. Well, Michelle, on the other hand, she gets pissed off and then actually does something that inspires others, which is pretty good. It's great timing right now with everything that's going on in the country and the world, Michelle. So we need, I need you, we need you. Michelle is a filmmaker and she's a former PBS award-winning journalist. Her latest film, and she's the writer, producer, and co-director of it, is The Uncondemned. And it all began when she got pissed off when stuck in traffic in L.A. on the 405. She was listening to the radio and heard a crazy man, who was a politician, say that a woman could not get pregnant from rape because if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. It's really... It's really hard to believe that anybody could possibly say that, but it's true. So tired of hearing stupid people say stupid things, Michelle took action. And we're going to get into the actions she has taken. This is one of many. So we'll get into the film and so much more. And we're going to kick today off with my mentoring moment. So the other day I was thinking, I was saying about my Amazon Echo, Alexa, and I was telling my friend about her because, you know, working out of the home, out of my apartment, some days you really don't know if you've eaten, if you've taken a shower, you know, you really do go look in the bathroom and say, is the towel wet or not? Did I take a shower? What day is it? So I said that I like having Alexa because I have someone to talk to. And I was kind of kidding, not really, but kind of. So my friend said, but is Alexa really smart? So I said, let's ask her. So I said, I asked Alexa, are you smart? And Alexa said, I try my best. And I thought, what a great answer, right? I mean, we should all, that's that's what life is. We are smart and we're always trying our best and we're always learning. So then my next question was, because now I'm having fun, and this this is one of the dangers of working home alone, I have to tell you, is Alexa, are you a failure? And Alexa's response was, I can't find the answer to the question I heard, which once again, I thought that's really a great answer. When somebody at, when you start to go down that I'm a failure, it's like, just don't deal with it. Right. So then my last question was, Alexa, what can't you do? And she then started to tell me what she can do. She went on to, I play music, I give you the weather. I, she went through the whole list of, she, okay, you could hear Alexa in the background. I said her name, and so she's talking. So, I, so she said that she can do all these things. And I thought, you know, it's really great when, and not looking at alternative facts, okay, but looking at when, when you start to go down that road, of what can't I do? Or when you hear those voices in your head, and it might be a voice of a parent or a teacher when you were in middle school, somebody who said to you at one point in your life, or even your own self saying to you, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. To be able to go into that space of what I can do and don't let people take away your power or yourself, to put that power back where it belongs into, this is what I can do. And then you can deal with what you can't do if you want to be able to do those things. So those are my lessons from Alexa, just by asking stupid questions. And then I ask her to tell me a joke. So Did she? The, she does, she does. And some, yeah, so some of them are like... Was it good? Eh, she's, not, she's smarter in this department right. than the joke. The jokes are silly, but they're, they're uh. juvenile, but they do make me laugh. So I don't know what this is about me or Alexa. I'm not quite... Or working at yeah, home alone, yeah. one, of the, one of the three. 
So that's my mentoring moment is about not giving power away. Yeah, I think, I mean, what's interesting as, as I'm hearing you say that, I was trying to think about the first time I was told that um, I couldn't do something. And I remember, so I started writing really young. I think I wrote my, I wrote my first short story when I was five. It was called Kitty. When I was, was seven, it about your cat? It was about a cat. A cat, a cat, right? It wasn't even about my cat. Because I, I didn't think, I, I didn't have a cat at that point. I got one very quickly. Um, my dad was a commercial artist and he would bring home um, brochures, like blank brochures. You know, they do a, a test run, or at least they used to. I don't know what they do now. Um, the printer would run a test run and so it would be these blank books and he would bring them home and I would draw pictures. And eventually I started writing stories to go along with the pictures and then that switched to um, writing a story and then having the pictures go along with the story. So when I was five... Um, was really the first time I actually had a consistent storyline. I, I don't remember what the plot was, to be perfectly honest with you, but I do still have this uh, this book, Kitty. When I was seven, my dad brought home a longer book. Like it was, instead of being like seven pages, it was you know like a full book with a hardcover. And I decided to write the full length version of Kitty. Okay, so now Kitty, and halfway through, I was sort of you can see I was reading Little House on the Prairie because Kitty has a boyfriend named Almanzo. I mean, whatever. Was it illustrated at all? Or is it was all. Illustrated. Okay. Oh, and I got in a lot of trouble too because at one point, um, you have all these different animals, and I had Slimy Snail, a snail named Slimy, and Slimy Snail. I everybody was getting married, and so I married him off to Sonia Snail. My sister's name is Sonia. My little sister was so upset that I made her into a snail. She cried and cried and cried, and I had to edit it out. It's my first censorship. Okay? <laughs> and to this day, my that's sister's... That's what made you an investigative Exactly. Girl. I'm like, that's not right. right. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> my sister to this day talks about the fact I made her a snail. Right. Um, so anyway, when I was 11, I taught myself how to type, and I typed on my mom's... Uh, manual typewriter and I typed out this um story that I, I had in my head and again it's, I, it's called the Moiter Mansion Adventure which is a terrible title and it's about these but two, what was that again the Moiter Mansion Adventure and there's the the mansion I want was, you to say that fast three times I know right <laughs> that fast three, and I've got, I actually still have it it's at my parents house but it's about these two girls who go into, I, anyway doesn't matter what what matters here is that I typed it all up and brought it to my mom and I said can I, uh, my mom and dad, I was like, can I have um, some postage to mail this to a publisher? And the publisher I was going to mail it to was Harper and Row because they published the Little House on the Prairie books. And I remember my mom saying, my mother is a wonderful person, but the first thing out of her mouth was, well, why do you want to do that? You're not a real writer. And I heard that and I was like, uh, well, Okay. And then I remember I walked down the street and I asked my friend's mom for postage. And I said, I will just take my allowance and pay you back, but could I get postage? She says, well, oh, okay. What are you going to do with it? I said, I'm going to mail my book to a publisher. She's like, oh. Anyway, of course my parents heard that I went and bought, you know, borrowed stamps from Mrs. Cook, right? And I will never forget, though, the fact is, I mean, for for a long time, they were saying, oh, we don't know. We don't know if you should do that or you can't do that. And it just never, you know, from day one, when, of course, by the way, Harper Road did not publish the book, but they did write back. They wrote back and said it was the best book by an 11-year-old they'd ever read. And, um, and I remember thinking, look, I, I could be a real writer. Right. It, it could happen. And so I've always been a little bit delusional that way. <laughs> See, I think this is great because I think as a parent, right, I have a 23-year-old daughter, and I, I think she's a star. Yeah, I think she is a star on so many levels. Her being, she's a wonderful human being. She's so smart. She can do whatever she wants to do. But I look back as you're telling that story, Michelle, and I think to myself, ooh, did I ever like do that to Allie? Because I think we're trying to manage disappointment. Yes. And that's not what we need to do. And so... It's like, just go with it, knowing that it may not work and deal with it when it doesn't work, right? Um, because you do bring down that excitement when someone says, oh, that's a great idea, but... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And think of how, how often that happens at work. Oh my God, it happens all the time. And you know what? You are going to fail. That's that's the truth. Right. You are going to fail. And I, re- I will always describe like what I do. We're in the business of ideas, you and I. And guess what? Not everyone wants to buy your ideas. Right. And it's a lot like hanging off a cliff and you're just like, if I let go, I hope I'm going to land somewhere nice and soft and mossy, you know, and I won't break a leg. But the first time you let go and you realize you're going to live to tell the tale, you're going to be okay. So if you're, if you are afraid to fail, um, you will not 
succeed in whatever your dream is. You know, exactly. you should go for it. And maybe you have to edit that dream. You have to come up with plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, whatever. And maybe what ends up happening and what um, what you end up doing isn't what you planned, but it was what you where you were supposed to end up. But you do have to be fearless about that approach. And again, you're going to get knocked around. I remember actually saying, thinking this and then saying it out loud, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to if we didn't have to fail in order to learn wouldn't it be great if we just knew all this yes. stuff but the but fact wouldn't is, they have as much fun in a way yeah i mean failure can be not that it's fun like ho 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 fun but <laughs> right. the learnings take you to a different point exactly Exactly. And, and you just, and that they don't, they, I don't remember ever hearing that from my, from my parents or in school that, you know, failure can be good. You know, I, okay. You know what I would liken it to? Here's something that every female friend has said at one point to another female friend when they are going through a bad breakup. It's like, you know, use this to go on to the next, use the lessons you've learned to go on and have a healthy relationship or a good relationship or find a good guy. You know, don't, don't let your heart, you know, your heartbreak just stay that way, you know, learn from this. So if we do that in our personal lives and we say that to our friends all the time, we should be saying that to each other in our professional lives. Exactly. I agree with you. A hundred percent, but it's so hard, especially I think with the with millennials now, because they were raised not to fail, right? They were raised to win every. If you won the soccer game or not, you got a trophy. Yeah. So they don't know how to fail. Like failure's not. They don't know what to do with it. So they, it's so personal that oh my god, I didn't do well. Yeah, this is why I dropped out of soccer. I was like, this is stupid. I, I I like to run. I mean, it's clear somebody crosses that line first, right? You know. But you know what? Running and I ran cross country and track. I was a really good runner. Um, and I think about that a lot too because one of the lessons you learn in cross country is you just, just so you don't psychologically burst your brain and like cry because it's all psychological. You're running through the pain, but you run to a tree. You look ahead and you go, I'm going to get to that tree. But as you start to approach that tree, you look to the next one. And and then at some point, you know, the trees are gone and you're crossing the finish line. Um, that's a great visual. Yeah. And that's just one of those things that kind of keeps you, keeps you motivated. But again, it's super clear uh, that there are winners and there are losers. And it's a very important lesson to learn. And by the way, winning doesn't always mean you get the trophy or you get the medal. There've been plenty of races where I was like, I kicked ass in that and I didn't win, but I placed exactly where I wanted to. I might've had a PR personal record or whatever, but you know, it's, it is true. One of the things I've found is I get, I have tons of interns that come through obviously. And, um, I, I, I had lots of internships and great mentors, so I feel it's important to also have that. But I can't tell you how many of them will come through, and I will see some t- – uh, they're kind of timid about jumping off that cliff, you know, or letting go. Right. And I finally had to tell them, I'm like, look, you know what? You're going to have to learn to take that risk and realize that, you know, you're you're not – it's an overused term now, but you're not a special snowflake, you know, and that's okay. You're going to be fine, but you're going to have to let go because this, this business that we're in, um, too many people want to be here. Too many people want to be here. And so you're going to have to pull on the big girl pants. Right. And I, I love your spirit. I just love your spirit. So now I want to hear your mentoring moment. I want to hear okay, your mentoring so this, moment. I was thinking a lot about this when you presented it to me because I've had, I've had great mentors all through my career and um, learned some obviously amazing things that have really stuck with me. But here's a story I actually – I forgot it happened. Um, so my first job, I, uh, as a 22 year old, I was hired to be a communications director on Capitol Hill. And why did I want to go to Capitol Hill? I wanted to go to Capitol Hill because I thought, well, if I want to change the world and shoot my mouth off about how to change things, I should know how things work. So I went, I went, I moved to Washington. Um, I waited tables and passed out 300 resumes and I got an amazing job. I was down my last hundred dollars and I was the, I think 32nd person interviewed, um, by Congressman Pete Guerin, who was a conservative Democrat from Texas, from Fort Worth. And I'm a thousand percent sure the only reason why I got the job was because um, they they really needed to hire somebody at this point. They put it off. I was young, so I was cheap. And also, he asked me what my mile time was. And there's a race that they run, um, the Capitol Hill Challenge. And he's like, oh, you'd be a very valuable member of our team. So I was like, <laughs> thank, thank God for cross country. So if you're <laughs> listening. seeing those trees. Yeah, I've seen those trees. So anyway, I start this job and it's a big job to be a communications director. You're doing press releases, you're doing strategy, you're writing speeches. 
you're handling these press calls. Um, and having been a member and, and I was planning to go back out and be a member of the press. I mean, I know how the media acts, you know, and I got burned and this, that, and the other. Anyway, so NAFTA happens, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I was supposed to, uh, you know, I, he was going to vote for it. And so I was developing the materials that were going to go out to the district and pitch to the district newspapers. And he called me into his office and he asked me a question. It was a very specific legislative question. And the only way I would have known it is if I had read NAFTA, which was like 1,500 pages. And um, I hadn't read it yet. So I, he asked me a question and I just, you know, as you normally do when you're asked a question, you don't know the answer. I just kind of start dancing around. Well, cause you, you know, you want to please the person. And I remember Pete stopping me and saying, do you know, or don't you know? And I was like, uh, and he looked at me, it was almost with disgust, although he would, he would contest that. He was like, if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. And he said it in such a stern tone. I was like, okay. But I remember the next time I didn't know the answer to something in that office. And he asked me a question. By the way, I did read all of NAFTA. I mean, it was excruciating, but I read it. Um, But I remember the next time I was asked a question, I didn't know the answer. I said, I don't know. And he's like, okay. And there was respect in saying, I don't know. And so the thing we are always taught, which is always be prepared, have an answer, you know, don't say that. The the most powerful words that that can be given to you are, I don't know. Because if you have the confidence to admit that you don't know something, you know, everybody wants to help you. And you know, when this came in handy, as you know, my my co-director died in a car accident. He died before the film was completed. And his part of being co-director... This is for the uncondemned. For the uncondemned, yes, thank you. And he was the cinematographer and the editor, but he was also going to be the guy who did the sound mix and the, you know, who would be in those sessions for sound and for color and all the technical things. And I remember, uh, you know, trying to figure out how I was going to move forward. With Can you all just of go this. back one step yeah. to how he died? That he, you, you were in yes. the Hamptons. Yes, we were in the Hamptons. Um, we were in the Hamptons International Film Festival. We were actually the, the, you know, the big winner of the Conflict Resolution Award, and this was announced before the 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 film festival and he wanted to personally deliver the film um it was a work in progress which made it even more fun that we had won so he dropped it off at the at the festival office and this was two weeks before the festival and um, he texted me to say i'm proud of this film i'm proud of us and then about three hours later he uh swerved to avoid hitting three deer and he, he struck a tree and died instantly at the age of 34 which was, you know, I lost my friend, my partner, my, uh, you know, um, we just, we, and we also just had such a wonderful, wonderful time working on this film about a terrible subject, which was also inspiring. But I remember, th- and, and what the work that remained ahead was terrifying to me because I didn't know any of it, but guess what? I did know how to say those words. So I remember saying, I going, okay, I can do this because I can say, I don't know. And people will help me. And that's exactly what happened. So you said, I don't know. And people came to rescue. Yeah. I remember them saying, well, what do you think you want for this? I was like, I don't know. I have never, and I, I also said, you wanted six hundred thousand dollars. I went six. Yeah, I was like, I need six hundred thousand dollars. I'm like, eh, what else do you need, honey? And I was like, <laughs> what's a five point one mix, you know? And there, it is really interesting because people do like being asked for advice and for help and all those things. The other thing I also realize is, you know, that saying we always hear: "This isn't my first rodeo." I started telling people, well, this is my first rodeo. <laughs> Help. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I mean, but I, I you know, there's, there's never, there, you will never hit a point in your life where you don't say those words. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, every day. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing that I do see a lot and I don't want to group all millennials together, but I see it a lot with the, some of the young with the millennial women that I do know is they won't say, I don't know. And they'll act like they do know. And then you that you or some Someone gets set down the wrong path mm-hmm. because they're in a position where they're saying, this is what you should do. And it's not the right advice on mm-hmm. what you should do. So it really would be helpful just to say to me or to whoever they're working with, I don't know, but mm-hmm. let's find out. We can find out together. I can find out. However, mm-hmm. that is a huge, a huge lesson in life to be able to say, I don't know. It's freeing. Mm-hmm. You're telling the truth. You're not thinking about you know, how do I have to act? Because it will catch up with you. I, here's mm-hmm. what I used to do. People would say to me, do you know so-and-so? 
And I would be like, well, no, I don't know them, but I know of them. Well, I didn't even know who they were. I mean, the name, but to me, that was like, I should know because the, it would be the tone the person would use. It would be like, you're clueless mm-hmm. if you don't know. And I didn't want to be clueless. Right. Now, as I'm older, I'm just like, I can't know everybody or I don't, I mean, there's so much going on in the world. How could I possibly know every yeah. name? Because in your world, a name may be really, really big, but in my world, it may not be. Mm-hmm. And unless it's on news, I'm not going or I'm reading about it. That's not going to cross in my life. So that was a real lesson for me to just be able to yeah. say, no, I don't know. So yeah. tell me so I can learn who this person is. Yeah. And it's a sign of confidence too. I mean, I, when, when I'm building a team for these projects, I need really confident, competent people who will say, I don't know. And right. who aren't afraid of failure because the type of work that I do that I've made my name on, you go down plenty of blind alleys. I mean, it's investigative storytelling is all about failure. <laughs> you know? Do you know how many times, I mean, I thought when, when I wanted to decided to do a story, about the first time rape was prosecuted as an international crime of war, I researched the wrong case for six months. So how did that happen? I, I do want to go back on yeah. a bit now because I do want to talk about The Uncondemned. And for yeah. our listeners, I love The Uncondemned. I'm on the advisory board. That's right. So I <laughs> you're, tell you're you how on the much, poster. Your yeah, name I, is on I the heard, poster. I heard. I <laughs> heard. And, and so I do love, I, I love the story. I love the way you told the story, um, at taking it and making it into something that's positive mm-hmm. and showing the power that so I'm going to let you speak about it because you just know it so much better than I do <laughs> so tell us about the story and how it came about yeah so um, as as you said I was stuck on the 405 freeway and I heard um, Todd Aiken was running for a US Senate in Missouri um, and he said that crazy statement and I remember thinking the Serbs didn't get that memo and my mind automatically had gone to the Yugoslav war um, because that happened, you know, all through the 90s, basically. And that was really the first time that sexual assault, sexual violence and conflict was covered by the media. We owe an enormous debt to those men and women who covered um, what happened in Bosnia and, all, and then went on to Rwanda and other other wars. Now we cover it, but we, it wasn't before then. Um, and by the way, here's a fun fact for you. Uh, ask me who Todd Aiken's campaign manager was. Okay, who was Todd Aiken's campaign manager? Kellyanne Conway. Oh, my God. Yeah. Who may or may not be the, the villain in my first novel that was published in 2003, <laughs> which she was. I've known her for a long I knew her back in, in our 20s in D.C. World. It's a very it's, small it world. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. It's a small world. Uh, and some people just don't change. Right. That's okay. Um, so anyway, so I, I, what I liked, what I wanted to do, we all know rape is bad, all right? We all know rape and war is bad. Um, rape and war really does reduce this to what they actually is. It's an act of deadly intent, and it's an act of power, torture, and humiliation. It's not about sex. Sex is about pleasure. You know, this is about inflicting the most harm you can possibly do onto a person. And so since we all knew that, and since it does take a little while to make a film, I was like, I don't want to depress myself for three years. What if I tell the story about what they did about it? What, when was the first time it was prosecuted as a crime of war? Well, because the sexual assault cases that I was most aware of uh, had gone through the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, um, Focha being the case that I was most familiar with and read the most about, and that was where women were held in rape camps um, and repeatedly assaulted. Um, that's what I thought the first case was. So I, for six months, I interviewed all these Bosnians and Serbs and Croats and whatever. And and, and, I, and I, it was I'm the kind wrong of, case. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of throwing my hands around because also they all still really. I mean, that war to some degree is still bubbling along. And I was like, oh boy, this is going to be really a lot to take on. And I was in the. I was at the Pickford Theater in Bellingham, Washington in January of 2013. They were doing a special screening of my first documentary, which had aired on television, had not been in theaters, but a group wanted to have a screening there, and they flew me out for it. Um, This is the one on Haiti. Yeah, it was about what happened to the money donated to major U.S. charities after the Haiti earthquake. And I was going to do the Q&A with a human rights lawyer named Nicole Phillips. And we were having a glass of red wine called Local Red in the the little cafe attached to the theater. And she said, what are you doing next? I said, oh, I'm going to do a film about the first time rape was prosecuted as a crime of war. She says, Akeyesu. 
like aqua what <laughs> and i'm like no it was Fojo. thank god you were you were taught to ask questions like yeah, you don't know right? versus saying oh i know that i'm like what are you talking about and i was like i just i you know it's even like a weird sounding word right and she's like oh yeah and, you know i'm pierre prosper i'm like who's pierre prosper she, oh he's haitian american i'm like i'm really trying to get away from the haiti thing but okay and um she put me in touch with him and i spoke with him january 21st 2013 and then i remember you know listening to the story and going, holy cow. And just turning to, to Nick, my, 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 my partner, my creative partner and saying, I, I think you're going to want to stick around. This is, this is really good. What was very unusual about the uncondemned, it was so evident right away was that it was an opportunity to do something I hadn't done before, which is narrative nonfiction. Um, these stories are very special. They don't happen very often. It does take an enormous degree of maturity as a storyteller to be able to tackle it and tell it that way. Um, and that was, I remember right away thinking, this is just, this is the greatest story I've ever had. Um, you know, there's not one hero there, you know, there, it shows how you can be a hero just by doing your job or by being brave enough to speak out. Um, it is a classic good versus evil story. Um, good wins, obviously, because I wouldn't have done this story otherwise. I'm not going to do a story where it ends and you're like, I think I want to slip my wrists and watch myself slowly bleed to death. Like that's, Those are not the kinds of stories I'm interested in. I'm interested in the art of the possible. And what I love about this particular story and what got me through um, telling it, because there was a lot of vicarious trauma in doing the research and in going out into the field and all of the components that go into telling this, or the reporting that goes into telling this story before you ever you know, start rolling one shred of tape. But I remember what I loved about it was in 1994, we, some, you know, something really horrible happened and the entire world messed it up. Um, the Rwandan genocide, but also Bosnia happened at the same time. But in 1997, humanity got it right. And isn't that cool? Isn't that great? It shows that no matter how bad it gets, and it, it was bad, it shows that it is possible to do something about it. And sometimes the doing something about it isn't as heroic, the hero's journey that we've all seen in Hollywood. It's just doing your everyday acts of bravery. Which is also, by the way, what happens in Casablanca. I was just rewatching Casablanca the other day. I'm like, yeah, oh, Rick's a pretty brave guy. He doesn't mean to be brave, you know. Anyway, so I just love the story, and I <laughs> and I, 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 as I said, I love the film. I love the women, the yeah. power of the women, and. Can you just touch on the women a little? Because I think in what we're going through now in our own country, very different than what was going on. But there are so many similarities in the power that yeah. we all have. Well, you know, to some degree, it's not so different. I mean, I constantly talk about the power of words. And one of the ways that that genocide in Rwanda happened was through radio and um, media, just media in general, because they started planting certain words in people's minds and repeated them and repeated them and repeated them, um, you know, cockroach and things like that. They also hyper-sexualized the Tutsi women. Oh, they're, they're evil. Their sexuality makes them evil. And all of these things enabled the perpetrators to sort of justify to themselves um, committing these acts that in, you know, in no way would in normal society would those ever be acceptable. But these women, um, you know, it wasn't going to be a movie um, if the witnesses themselves didn't step forward. It would have just been, you know, it's a very good story about the prosecutors. But to me, it's also about like, how does the human spirit triumph? How do you how do you take this horrible, awful, almost in, insurmountable thing that's happened to you and make it a moment of triumph. And the first time I met these women, um, I remember when, when I met, I met them at the Mill Colleen, the Hotel Rwanda, and I asked them to join me for lunch. And I didn't realize actually what a big deal that was for them because they would never normally go there. Um, they live very, uh, humble lives and two, what, two of them are still in the village of Taba and two of them live uh, in Kigali, but certainly, you know, it's nothing very fancy at all. I mean, there are some very nice houses in Kigali, but they don't live in those. Um, so they came and I remember uh, telling them, you know, here's what I've done. Here's who I am. Here's, you know, but tell me, why did you decide to testify? And to this day, and they've become my friends, but we've never talked about what happened to them. I couldn't tell you. I know some things that happened to them, but 
I don't know the details. Um, I know things that have happened to them since. I know their tragedies. I know their children who have died. I know the husbands who have left. But I don't know what happened to them. And why is that? Because I thought a lot about, well, how would I want to be questioned? You know, one of the things that um, I think is impossible to not do, if you are a woman covering these things, is you definitely think, oh, my God except for the fate of where I was born, that could have been Winning me. the birth lottery. Yeah. And I call it the grace of fate, birth lottery, all those things. And so would I want my worst moment to be the one thing the world knows about me? Because I knew that this film was going to go around the world. Right. And, and I thought, well, that's not how I would want it to be known. I would want my moment of strength. So, so that's why that was the first question. And they not only are they very open in how, in how they talk on camera, they were also willing to, to say their names and they, they do break their code name for the first time and the power of when they do that. And everybody knows that scene is coming. It's very public. Everybody knows it's coming. I will tell you, I will always sneak into the back of the theater to watch the reaction because there's always a gasp. There's a sob. There've been cheers. Um, it's It's very emotional. It's the moment where you're like, yes, you know? And, um, anyway, and it's just, it's just such a cool moment. And to know what's happened to them since, by the way, you know, they were here for the film premiered October 19th and we had 700 people at the United Nations. The United Nations actually hosted the red carpet premiere and they were all there and they had these meetings at the United Nations and they, you know, one of the things they were the most surprised was to find out how women in other countries are currently being treated and some of the things that are said. So for example, they were very interested in some of the things that were said during our election and keep in mind the, the tape, um, the grab her by the pussy right. tape um, had come out right before they were here. So they heard that. And you know what? It was really crushing to see their reaction. They were really upset. They, they, they not, not even at the president who said it, um, they were upset that, that those things could happen here. And they said, we didn't know that this was how women were treated in the United States. Because we're the dreamland. Yeah. This, this isn't, that doesn't happen. And I have here. to tell you, that was really a shock for me to hear. But it was That's... really eye-opening. And they talk a lot about that. Um, and they were here for two weeks. They were here in New York. And then they were in Texas, where they lectured at Texas Christian University. Um, so now these women who were living these relatively humble lives in their houses. Now they're the heroines of Rwanda and they are touring around Rwanda speaking and talking about their time here in the United States and why you should speak up and speak out. But they were, they were outraged on our behalf. And JJ, who's the first person, let alone first woman ever to testify about sexual violence in conflict. She says very specifically to me, she's like, you cannot stop fighting for women. You have to stay out there. And Keep in mind, the the uncondemned is entirely crowdfunded, and fifty percent of our donors are men. Our top donors are men. Our top donors are conservative Republican men. And she said this to them <laughs> as well. And it always it was really you know we we do have to start asking ourselves some questions about okay, well, at what point do we also say no? We're going to step forward and start speaking out and push back about this. So far in 2017, Forbes and Podcast One have already launched three highly acclaimed shows. The interview with Steve Bertoni features the business world's most interesting names, like Adam Carolla, Twitter founder Sean Rad, and Hollywood's own Jessica Alba. So I spent a lot of my childhood in hospital and hospital beds. Under 30 with Steve Goldblum talks to the movers and shakers, like Nation Builder CEO Jim Gilliam and NFL big game winner Martellus Bennett. Guys are afraid to be themselves because of their marketing deals. And the list with Art of Charms, Jordan Harbinger. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and information that doesn't make the print cut next up sports money with mike ozanian talking to team owners athletes and industry leaders about the enterprise and money behind supreme athletic competition forbes on podcast one not just entertaining informative subscribe now at itunes and don't forget to rate review and share when you're wearing the right outfit it feels good like finding an onion ring in your french fries good feel that way every single day when you work with a trunk club personal stylist meet your stylist at trunkclub.com that's t-r-u-n-k-c-l-u-b.com 
Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. So Michelle, with all of the women, everyone you've met from all the countries, everything you've covered, and as the women said about our country, about the United States, they were shocked what was going on here. How do you feel? What do you see? What actions are you taking um, about women being silenced here or women, the power of women here? Mm, Well, I think it was really fascinating to see how many people turned out for the Women's March. Um, That was amazing to me. Um, I I did not march. I I fight on so many other levels that I'm like, I, but I, I was very supportive and excited for what is an important part of civic discourse. Like you have to take to the streets to be heard sometimes. Um, What is concerning um, is, you know, there's such a, there's such a forceful pushback right now. And what I want to liken it to are a couple of areas where we've seen this happen before. Um, in 1990, there was a sports writer named Lisa Olson. Still, she's still a sports writer, but at the time she wrote for the Boston Herald and she was in the locker room of the Patriots and they started waving themselves in front of her, waving their penises in front of her saying, Oh, you look at it, look at it. You want to take a look here it is. And she, you know, it goes on from there. And she, she told her editor about it. She was 26 at the time. Um, and then it ended up breaking in the, I think the Boston Globe may have written about it. So it became this big furor about like, should women be in the locker rooms? Okay. Women have been in the locker room since 1978. All right. Why then? Why 1990? Well, women fans of the NFL were almost at parody. It was like, you know, 48% of NFL fans were women. And more and more women were coming into sports writing, et cetera. And because as that encroachment happens, it was like, you know, like the little rascals, a he-man woman haters club, you know? And so there was this sort of like, no, you can't come in here. We're not going to let you in. And it became really horrible. She had to leave Boston. She actually moved to Australia for a time. I mean, her tires were slashed. She was threatened with being raped, all sorts of things. The owner of the Pats, he was the guy who owned the Remington Razor. Remember, I liked yes. the Razor so much, yes. I bought the company. He actually said, and I quote, now, here's a joke that I'm sure Alexa hasn't told you. He said, what do the Iraqis and Lisa Olsen have in common? They've both seen a Patriots missile up close. Like that one. Everyone's like, ha, 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 ha. Okay. But now look where we are. I mean, that would, you know, that would never happen. Women and women are, I think we're over 50% in terms of fans of the NFL. Okay. So what was the pushback you had a couple years ago? Gamergate. All right. Remember Gamergate with the video games and everything? Well, I I was curious. um, So I looked at the percentages like, well, where were women in terms of playing video games? Guess what? Almost parity. 48%. Right, but all the games are being made for men. Exactly, and so the, the men, and so the men were worried that with all, more and more women playing, that the, the games would become more feminized and whatever. So, um, and then you have we wouldn't kill so many people, right? <laughs> Great, <laughs> exactly. Um, butterflies right. will fly around, you know. So anyway, so it, and again, you had this really violent pushback, and these poor women, um, these poor girls, and I say poor not because I pity them, but like, oh my god, the things that came at them. It was all the same things that happened at least. Olson, but because of social media, because of, you know, technology, it was that much more vicious, you know? Um, so what's happening now? Very similar, you know, we don't want to let you in. Well, guess what? It, we're already in, (laughs) you know, and it's really important, um, as women living in the United States, no matter what your ideology, and I really want to stress this, this is not about ideology. This is about power and control. Let's go back to the word control. I love the topic of control because that's what most of this stuff is about. Um, but it is about controlling our voice. And the thing we have to keep in mind is that women around the world are watching us and they do derive inspiration from, from us because we do in a lot of ways, live the dream. Um, the way the women are silenced around the world is, is appalling. And I've seen it. I've watched it. You know, what's interesting in Rwanda is that when those women took to the streets and marched, um, in order to prosecute rape in their own country, it used to be prosecuted at the same level as like petty theft. And they're like, Oh no, no, not, not now. And they took to the streets and marched. Well, 
parliament in Rwanda is over 60% female. You know, the foreign minister is a woman, et cetera, et cetera. Having women in office is incredibly important. Um, I think that we are being taught that every day here. And again, it's not about, um, it's not about a particular party affiliation. I think that we are so far down the line of just making it us against them. No, I was going to say, that's just bullshit. (laughs) You know, it's not us versus them. You know, we're all in this together, whether we like it or not. And we actually, most people do agree with each other. And the way that um, that all this dissent and all this anger that's been fomented, it's really important for us to keep in mind, people are making money off that. I mean, that's why they foment it. And I think it's time, women know how to communicate. We are great communicators. It's time for us to speak out, speak up, reach out to each other and, and find that way forward. Because guess what? Either we do it um, or nobody does it. Exactly. And we were talking earlier, too, about you just don't want to piss a woman off. This takes us back to the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. And when we get pissed off, we yeah. do take action. Yeah. Well, first of all, we stick with it. I mean, oh, you're reaching that next tree. That's not a problem. And, and we are a slow burn. But once we're there, we're there. And also... What's really, really tricky about us is that we, um, you know, I, I, you and I were talking earlier, you know, men say what they, what they mean when, and when a guy tells you, I I really can't handle this relationship, he is telling you, I cannot handle this relationship. He's not telling you I can't handle right now. Um, As we will say to our friends, well, he said that, but what he really meant was, it's like, no, he really meant it. So he He doesn't want to be in this relationship. See, this is where being a sports writer, you guys really helped me a lot. (laughs) I can like call this one out. That's exactly, guys are just wonderfully straightforward that way girls oh no 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 we will not always say what we mean we have and we also don't say things right away we'll hold it in because that's what we were taught we were taught to hold things in right so this slow burn that happens once we are there once we are mad it doesn't go away right away and we also are very very good as a gender at using anger in constructive ways we're not necessarily going to throw a punch no, we, we will, we, we will find a way to get our way, um, whether we get the credit for that or not. That's another thing about women. We don't always need the credit, which is fascinating, but we should get the credit. We should get the credit. But again, if we, I mean, if, if what we're talking about is figuring out ways to, uh, get control or push back, um, how many women are, have been the, the power players behind, the powerful men. Exactly. We should have both. We should have the change and get the credit for the change. Right. Which is one of the great things I think that's happening in the world right now with all everything else that's going on is that we've never been this angry that I can remember in the past 20 years as women. We may not have liked what was going on, but we are now standing together Mm -hmm. and we're really angry at what's happening. And this is where I think we will start to see change as long as we don't become complacent. As I said to you earlier, one of the things that concerns me, and when I was in Pilates this morning, I thought about it. It was like somebody came in and she works for the Wall Street Journal and she was saying, you know, how crazy things are getting. And and I said, you know, for the next hour, I just don't want to think about any of this. I just really am so tired of hearing that he said, she said, he said, he said, he said. It's like... I want, I want removed from it. And I don't want to be removed forever. I want to be removed for that hour. What concerns me is, does that hour become two hours? I want to be removed for three hours. And that's what where we have to hold on to what's important to us and keep fighting for what's important for us so that we don't become complacent like we were before. Well, to go back to the, um, we've been talking about the illusion of running. All right. So when I go out and run a marathon, am I running um, the same pace that I do when I'm running like, you know, a, a mile? No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm taking some time to kind of, to maybe I pull up a little bit, like breathe or, you know, sometimes stop, eat a banana, whatever. I mean, you know, we are not always going to go full force. Nobody can sustain that. Right. And also it's not healthy. And also that's being, that's reactive. We don't want to be reactive. And we're getting out of balance. Yes, at, at exactly. I mean, sometimes we do have to be reactive because some of the stuff is just so ridiculous. You know, I mean, I will say I don't have, I don't have kids. Um, but if I did, I would be, uh, some of the stuff that I see going on, I'm like, really? Um, you know, Betsy DeVos, I, I found, I, I remember watching her and thinking, you know, 
she had beautiful manners. And I thought, well, why, why is she not up for an ambassadorship for somewhere kind of fun? Like, I don't know, Bermuda, you know, or something like that, <laughs> where her money would have been deployed well. She presents herself well, but no, she right. has to go for like Secretary of Education. And like, what do you do? Like everybody made those phone calls. What do you do? Well, guess what, folks? The decisions for education are not made at the national level. Exactly. And so there's plenty you can do. And we know from watching how school boards act and what books they ordered. Like that's one of the most important offices you can hold. And also some of the most important meetings you can go to. My dad was on school board at my local high school. He was president of the school board. There you go. I mean, there are all all sorts of ways where we can, um, where we can actually work towards, uh, having a voice in this process that may not be where, you know, at that screaming level on Twitter or whatever. I mean, I found myself going, I've got to like, you know, get off of Twitter because I feel like I'm on crack. You know, I need my next hit. I'm, I'm with you. It's yeah. like this black hole. So I really think there is that balance that we need. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to sum up our, I'm done with that. I'm going to mm-hmm. sum this up and you can tell me if I missed anything mm-hmm. instead of our doing our, I'm, I'm done with that because I think we've touched on so many things. But one of the things from this conversation mm-hmm. that I just want to emphasize that I'm done with is being silenced mm-hmm. and watching other women be silenced. Mm-hmm that we really need to speak up and we need to go after what we believe in. Yeah, I, I completely concur with that. And the thing that I'm done with, I'm done with anger. Right. You know what's not very, you know what feeds anger, what feeds contempt, what feeds all this stuff is anger. I mean, these, the people who are making some of these crazy decisions and, and I'm going to just say some of the decisions for policy are just crazy. They, they are. Right. Let's call it out. I think it's absolutely crazy that we're hearing all these wonderful things about Putin. I'm like, dude, I grew up in the eighties. I watched red Dawn war games. It's it's insane. It's It's totally insane. And we have to call it out sometimes, you know, and also by the way, this lie that was perpetrated by so many people that, you know, we're going to overturn Obamacare. You're not going to overturn Obamacare. I mean, all of these things. And again, let's step away from party affiliation and ideology. What works, and, and uh, you know, I'm seeing some dumb things that the Democrats were doing. I mean, a lot of dumb things. But what feeds all of this is is anger, and that's not constructive. People are angry because we have not been constructive for so long. And when you think about that, you go, you have to go into. Um, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish, but if you want to get things done, you're going to have to retreat from that, and you're going to have to start uh, deploying. Things that maybe your parents taught you, you know, uh, respect, kindness. You can be strong and be kind at the same time. For sure. Yeah. So I'm just done with anger. I am absolutely done with it. I'm not going to enable those people by being angry. Now, and you're also giving them your time and energy, yeah. right? So you're and you're losing in just that. It's like, okay, so I'm allowing you to get me to that point. Because when you get angry, you're not doing other things that you could be doing that are productive. And it doesn't it feel good either. No, it just yeah. sucks the energy out of you. Yeah. So we're going to, I could talk with you forever <laughs> on this, did you know, we're going to do a quick takeaway because okay. I asked our listeners before right. what questions they wanted to ask you. So I want to make sure we get at least one of them in. So if you could change one thing for women in the next generation, what would you change? I would change how sexual assault is viewed and have it be viewed for what it really is. Um, Which is power? Power, torture, humiliation. And it's about, it's, it's the ultimate act of bullying and the ultimate act of control. I would take the sex out of sex crimes. And the reason for that is because it's so common. There's not a single screening I've had where I haven't been approached afterwards. And sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's rape. Sometimes it's molestation. Um, but I can tell you the fact that we're not using the right words to talk about this is not helping anybody. It just is. And it's not going to make it go away to not call it out for what it truly is. So if I could change one thing, I think that would be the thing I could do that would have the most impact because um, this, when it happens to you, um, it does affect generations. And uh, it's very hard to heal from this emotionally and psychologically. And you really have to have a lot of things come together in order to move forward. So that would be that would be what I would do. Thank you, Michelle. I could go on forever and ever. <laughs> and we are. We're going to go continue yes. on. We're going to go get our hair colored or something. Have some <laughs> champagne. Up next. You know? <laughs> Thank you. And where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Even though 
that she's not going right, there right, anymore. Right. You can so find her there. It's uh, at Michelle Film at 11. Um, I'm also on Instagram, mlmitchell70. Um, and I am on Facebook and also via our Facebook page for The Uncondemned. And by the way, unlike a lot of people, I do post different things on different mediums. I am not on Snapchat. I don't understand it. This is one thing I'm like, have a great time, millennials. I don't get it. I'm definitely too old to learn that. So, but otherwise you can find me. <laughs> you think you're too old. <laughs> Thank you. I have to hold your Thank hand and blow you a kiss. So Thank fun. you. <laughs> As always, thank you so much for tuning in to Mentoring Moments. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live, which is every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about, are you afraid of failure or do you pull on your big girl pants and jump off the cliff and just go for it? And the next time you don't have the answer, will you fake it or will you say, I don't know? And the next time you get angry, will you be like Michelle and take an action to fix what's wrong in the world? I hope your answer is yes, because really, that's the only way we're going to change what's wrong in the world. So you can find me. It's easy. I'm always on Twitter, at Denise Rastari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories, because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Hi, I'm Larry McReynolds, host of the new podcast, Larry Mac, America's Crew Chief on Podcast One. On my first episode, I'm talking several of the bigger off-season stories in NASCAR. I'll talk Carl Edwards, a new series sponsor, the 2017 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductees, and much more. Every Wednesday, download Larry Mack, America's Crew Chief, on PodcastOne.com or subscribe on iTunes. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.